one of the things that I talk about to my startups is just the ability to be analytical and see through the noise, right? Is be able to see, look, there's all this data, there's all this information out there and being able to pull it all together. I now have all this information and I can put that together into a vision and plan and strategy to move forward, whether on my small project or my large billion dollar corporation. Welcome in to another episode of the Professional Profiles podcast that uncovers the time-tested wisdom for the next generation. Join me, a forward-thinking teen, as I engage in insightful conversations with industry titans, revealing the invaluable ingredients that pave the way to achieving remarkable success. Join us today on Professional Profiles as we welcome Jason Scharf an angel investor with a passion for biotech who has nurtured groundbreaking technologies and supported the growth of startups poised to revolutionize the industry. Discover Jason's personal journey, his expertise in biotech investments, and the trends shaping the future of healthcare. In this episode packed with valuable insights, here is Jason Scharf. Thanks for, thanks for having me. Of course. Just to start, I'd love to talk about your career path. Could you just sum that up? Jagged, I think, is the, is the easiest way to sum it up. That Definitely not a straight line. I actually, going back to college, I went into college with the intention of getting a PhD and as a joke, playing mad scientist for a living. So I went, I went to UC San Diego with the goal of getting a PhD in molecular biology and working in a lab. Best thing that happened to me was I got a chance to work in a lab early as an undergraduate and realized that it was not a good fit for me. Many years later, I married a PhD instead, so a much better fit. And so that was one of the first big inflection points of my life is I then switched over based on advice from my father. So it was, you know, you have to take one economics class no matter what. So took a macro economics lower division class, didn't take the final and still got an A, realized, oh, this is starting to get that, was able to write, got a job doing PR for life sciences. That's when that moment of, oh, the business side of science opened up. So switched path, went into kind of uh, life sciences and healthcare on the business side. Spent a number of years doing that, went back, got an MBA, thought I wanted to do be an entrepreneur and do a startup and be CEO of that. The career path at that point was, hey, you need to hit VP at a large corporate. So I was at a company, I was at Amgen, Illumina, Beck and Dickinson. So this kind of happened when I was at Beck and Dickinson, a large med tech company. Realized I was never going to be a VP there. Decided to get some executive coaching. And the question put forth by my coach was, why don't you go and start this company now? And so prior to that, the jobs I'd have was corporate strategy, business development, innovation. So those kinds of asking the questions of what's next, what are we, you know, taking the, all the data that's going out there and predicting out what we should be doing over the next three or four years. So I went out and like a good strategy professional, put together a PowerPoint deck, went back to my coach and we looked at it and that's the next big aha moment. There wasn't a product or solution anywhere in here, but there was the beginning of an investment thesis. And it's always funny to go look back at that, that deck now and realize how close it kind of matches to what I invest in today. And when I look at that predicting the future, looking at the kinds of things, w- the words I use today is my primary purpose and passion is catalyzing innovation. And so what that moment said was, okay, 
if I don't want to be the entrepreneur, I'm not building things. There's not, I'm not a product person. What is it that I wanted to do? And if it's seeing the future, seeing those things and bringing together that and it's catalyzing innovation, how does that actually functionally happen? And I started to dip my toe into investing uh, as an angel investor when I was in San Diego, got involved in a couple of different groups. And that's when that real big aha moment came. And so I left Beck and Dickinson, joined the big genomics company called Illumina, and at the same time got involved in angel investing, really started becoming passionate about that, done that now for the last five years. And then during the pandemic, moved here to Austin as well and stayed in both paths. So as I said, the, the best way to sum up the career path is you know, jagged, not straight, and not a clear-cut path when you look back at it. So along those same lines of looking for the future, you host the podcast Austin Next. Could you speak about that and how it aligns with your values or just talk about what you guys do? What's funny, right? So moved to Austin in December of 2020. And so was born and raised in California, you know, born north of LA, been in San Diego for about 15 years across two stints and, you know, came here right in the middle of COVID. And the origin of the podcast was so I actually moved here with obviously, you know, my wife and kids, and then also my parents as well, and was talking to my, my father. And as we were looking at different ways to integrate into the Austin ecosystem, very similar, I think, to what you're doing, we were looking at what's a quick and interesting way, a hack to meet cool and fascinating people. My father's background, you know, in college was in radio, TV, film. He was actually, you know, did the news at WGN in Chicago. He was, went to Northwestern. I've been involved. I've been on a number of podcasts. When I was at Illumina, we had launched an internal podcast for the commercial team. So this was to help get out information to sales and marketing across the globe. And so we had the idea of, well, what if we launched a podcast here in Austin? But asking a different question from the stereotypical regional innovation podcast, right? And so if I put the stereotypical regional innovation podcast really is asking the question of, let's talk about the cool company of the week, right? And if you look at say Guy Raz's How I Built This on NPR, right? That's the pinnacle of that type of podcast. Now he's got a bit of a trick. And the trick is, you know that company you've already heard of and know really well, would you like to hear the origin story of it? So that becomes really interesting and really fascinating. The regional versions of those have a bit of a harder time because if you think about venture investing, venture investing is, goes on something called the power law, which is if I invest in 10 companies, seven of them are going to go nowhere. They're going to die. Two or three of them are going to do okay. And then ideally, one of them is that 100x, that Google, that open AI, those, those amazing companies, right? When you think about that from the podcasting situation, if I'm interviewing 10 companies, and likely the time I'm interviewing them is the cool company of the week, you've never heard of any of the 10 when I interview them, right? These are all kind of fresh and new. Well, seven of them, you've likely are never going to hear from again, two or three of them maybe become something. And we're all hoping that there's that one becomes the next Google, but of course it's going to become the next Google seven or eight years down the road. So it becomes a really difficult proposition of when creating that podcast. Now, when we moved to Austin, asking your question of the line with the values, we looked at the question of, okay, I moved to Austin because 
Austin is becoming the next innovation powerhouse. That was, you know, it is quickly moving up in the narrative, the venture capital that is moving here, the unicorns that are growing. So we asked the question of what if is that is the focus of the podcast instead? Instead of being the cool company of the week, we asking these kind of more meta-narrative questions, these broader questions. And so that was where we wanted to focus the podcast. And the interesting thing was then by starting off something as being not the cool company of the week, but asking these broader questions, being an interesting hack to meet interesting people, it exploded in a way that had no intention of being, right? And so those broader questions about what drives innovation, what is creating Austin as really this next interesting place, that is really what has become, you know, what the podcast has become. What are some key trends or developments you believe will shape the business and technology industry in Austin? So I think there's a lot of different pieces to that, right? And I, But I think the biggest one that I think is coming into Austin is, I can say it kind of the, the flippant way I say, and then I'll, I'll dig into it a little bit. You know, I've identified a lot of the kind of the, the superpowers of Austin, but the one I want to focus in here is I call it, we, we leverage the power of and. And what I mean from that specifically, when you're asking about technology trends is it's the convergence of technology. So when I think about it, if you look at what's currently the, like the unicorns in Austin, right? They tend to be around the convergence of multiple types of technology, right? So to about icon. So icon 3d, for if your listeners don't know, is a 3D printing construction company, right? They have these large 3D printers and they're building houses. So it's the convergence of they've got software, they've got AI, they're building physical things, they've got 3D printing. So that's, a, that's one example, right? You've got Everly Health, which is a big healthcare company, which is about telemedicine and e-commerce and lab testing. You've got Jasper AI, which is all this kind of this generative AI meets marketing and ad tech, right? So it is all of these different pieces and things that are coming together. As we talked about a little bit, my, my you know, healthcare is, is, is my background. And I actually think that life sciences and biohealth is a key future area. And in many ways, it's what's coming now in, in Austin, but it's going to look different. It's not where like Boston is, where... They're churning out, you know, new molecules and new drugs every week. It really is about, we have this amazing tech sector. We have this amazing data and AI, and it's the convergence of those things with the life sciences. So I think that is the biggest thing that is going to be changing about Austin and where we are going to be able to be interesting and unique and different. Because one of the big things we used to have this in the beginning of, of Austin Next, and we, as we, we you know, change the intro every whatever, six months, every year or so, right, was we're not the next Silicon Valley, we're the first Austin, right? And by being the next innovation powerhouse, it's going to be something different. It's going to look different than Silicon Valley. It's going to look different than Boston. It's going to look different than Detroit in the 50s. It's going to look different than London in the late 18, you know, 90s, the Industrial Revolution. It's going to look different than going back to Rome in the, you know, at the Roman Empire. All these great hubs of commerce and innovation, they're all different things, right? And so that, that's the biggest trend is what, what is unique to us. So I'd love to just circle back to your work with Illumina. So you had to act as a leader in this corporate environment, I'm sure. 
What qualities do you believe make a strong leader and how did you implement them? It is very rare that you can just use straight call to authority in almost any environment, whether it be corporate startup or anything, right? Where I can just order you to do X. And it's also very rare that you want to do that, right? And so the ability to gain buy-in and to get people to want to be involved in these projects the, you know, one, one of my old, the GM at the infusion business of back when I was at, at Beck and Dickinson, always like the, the term, the with them, what's in it for them, right? I think is, and it's not always just about like, here's what's the, you know, I, I have to pay somebody to do this or, or drive out the, the incentive for them. But how do you build out the connection between teams, whether cross-functional, your team, our team, like be able to pull people together for a common goal, right? A lot when I think of, and I know you asked about corporate, but I think it resonates across when I talk about with, with like startups and I, I'll, I'll, I'll quick thing. I said, I told you I was in molecular biology when I started. So I actually switched over to creative writing. So that's my actual degrees in creative writing with a minor in economics. And the re- reason I say that is one of the things that I talk about to my startups that I work with and invest in is the importance of narrative and storytelling. Because when you're telling your story, when you're telling the story of the startup, you have to create a narrative that resonates with your customers, that resonates with your employers, with your partners, with your investors. That same story that you're crafting, it works the same way when you're thinking about it in the corporate environment. The project that you're creating, the team, you have to create a narrative and story that everybody can get around, that everybody wants to be a part of, right? And we can see when that also goes too far, right? When the story is built on a house of cards and nobody wants to do it, it becomes cult-like behavior. If we all watch the WeWork and the, the Theranos issues, right? That was when it gets taken too far. So there, there is a balance, but being able to work with those people and teams and being able to get by them, I think is probably one part that I think is, is the most important in, in, the, in the kind of the... I say the work world. I, I don't make that much distinction between corporate and startup. There's different challenges in each. And I, I think the other one is just the ability to be analytical and see through the noise, right? Is be able to see, look, there's all this data, there's all this information out there and being able to pull it all together, whether it be instinctually or through actual analytics, right? I've got my story. I've got the thing I'm telling it. I now have all this information and I can put that together into a vision and plan and strategy to move forward whether on my small project or my large, you know, billion dollar corporation. So with AI being way more prevalent, how do you see that impacting the job market and impacting everyone's individual lives? I think ChatGPT unlocks superpowers. So I have found myself being a ton more productive with this. I use ChatGPT six, seven times a day, right? And finding out where you are able to utilize it in your workflow and those types of opportunities. So I write a lot. Like a lot of people, I would assume, while a good writer, I hate the blank page, right? I stare at it, you hate it. And part of the reason I hate it is that I am editing along the way, right? I'm trying to make it this perfect thing. So that first draft is always fine-tuned probably too much. And what for me, ChatGPT has opened up is what I like have called the, the 0.5 draft. 
And what the 0.5 draft for me is I now have the ability to throw all of my thoughts down, half sentences, bullet points, terrible structure, just all the ideas, this data dump from my brain onto, a, onto the page, right? With no structure, it's terrible. I then am able to throw that into ChatGPT into a polished first draft. Now it is structured in a way that is decent. And then I can spend from draft one to draft final, putting in my voice, restructuring it, making it really the top-notch thing it is, but less worrying about the pain that it is, that first draft that ends up taking so long and not as much of a kind of a productive time, right? And so that actually caused me to write more than I was previously because it was always that I don't want to do that first step. I'm procrastinating it because it's, it's, it's not a lot of fun, right? So, so I see it being as a – it's interesting, and this is one of the things that, that I haven't seen written about as much is we see a lot of this job or that job is going to be re- replaced. And I, and I say job here less of a person, more like task. This task or that task is going to be replaced – but less writing about here's what it, what it unlocks outside of it being very, you know, 100,000 foot level, right? Like it's going to unlock a lot of opportunity for us. Great. Let, let's get, take it down a little bit of like, here's actually the superpowers it, it directly unlocks in us personally by being able to do all of these things a lot faster and better, right? And so I think that's one of the things that I think it really is really opportunistic and really makes me excited about it. So for those who lack experience in the workplace or that are students, do you fear that AI is taking away from their learning at all? I think we've been on this path for a while. And I think that something like ChatGPT is the bomb that has been blown into this is that how we learn is drastically changing. So we've been going in this path for a while with, say, which is Google of like, what is the value of learning a hundred specific facts when the data, when facts are all available to you, when the data is available to you, right? It's how do you address it? How do you change it? Like that's, that's the question, right? Is memorization as a tool set in learning, is that that useful anymore, right? And so now the skill sets are starting to change. And of course, education being a relatively slow movement, and of course, me as someone in health, can't be one to speak about slow moving in terms of adapting new technologies, you know, slow moving and adapting these things. So as a great example, I have small children and and my nine-year-old has been using ChatGPT to write a screenplay. And we've been using it as a almost like, think about it like the Harvard business case study, right? That type of mentality. It's the learning by doing. So he's understanding structure and storytelling by using this. And at times he's like, okay, so I'm done. I'm like, well, no, you're not even close to being done because you hit it and re-editing and understanding how we tell a story. But you're right. The education and how you would teach somebody with this tool set is very different than you would if you didn't when it says like, okay, here's my two sentence prompt. Now give me, I now get a three page output on my characters who are now fighting right? So you have to approach it in a very different way. What would you say to those who are resistant to AI? Well, there's two sets of resistance, right? There's the resistance of 
the AI's cheating, and then there's the there's the resistance of AI is going to destroy the world, which are very different resistance sets, right? I think that those people who are resistant and think of AI as cheating are just going to get left behind, right? It's we constantly have models and ways that people are using things are constantly changing, right? It's just the same as people saying, well, we shouldn't be using the internet. We shouldn't be using mobile, right? Like that's kind of that, that constant change, especially because it usually upends their status quo, right? Now it's going to cause us to have to use things differently. I mean, one of the things that I've talked about, right? And maybe this is a different way is, do you have a closed model where you give somebody a prompt engine and say, okay, here it is. There is something wrong in the model about the Revolutionary War. I'm making it up, right? And the test is using prompt engineering, you have to figure out what's the data that's wrong. So it's an entirely different set of thinking in ways that you have to do it, right? You have to know proving that you understand all of the information that you've learned about the Revolutionary War and are utilizing the skill sets to be able to interrogate the data to figure out what it's spitting out and then knowing that, oh, you know, it's telling me that the declaration was, you know, signed in 1774 instead of 1776, right? So that might be the way that tools are done differently, right? So you need to set the things that are done differently. The As for them, the people who are saying that, that AI is going to destroy the world, Look, I don't know. There's there's really, really smart people on both sides that are fighting that out. And, you know, we had, you know, on our episode, we had something called, uh, on an episode called like the Tech Tickman Point with some, you know, Brett Hurt and William Hurley, two local legends here talking a lot about it. You've got Elon Musk who's here. So like there's, I, I don't think it's going to. I think there's lots of amazing stuff that's coming out of it. I So that's my opinion. But I know that there's people on both sides of that. And I think that there is. At the same time as you see of biological disasters and nukes, that there's how we think about it is important as well. I'd love to shift back to your angel investing. So as an early stage investor, what specific factors do you consider when you're evaluating the availability of a startup business model or when you're just evaluating a startup in general? So it's a bunch of different things, right? So you're really looking at the problem they're trying to solve the solution itself, the team, the business model, how they're going to go about doing it, and then the overall kind of risk that they're taking on and at this moment and kind of the plan that they have to, to attack it, right? So, you know, I've seen obviously lots of different deals and it comes down to some combination of those. Now, when you look at the type of stuff that I tend to do in, especially in health, that has a lot more on the technical risk side. So there is, un, say, like unlike an e-commerce or SaaS type of play, at least in today's environment, there is a possibility that it's just not going to actually work. You're going to have that binary risk of, nope, it didn't, like you, the drug being the, the perfect example. There is an actual binary work of, that's the ball game. The, game, the drug just didn't work. One of the things that you think you may have heard this kind of phrase before of, you know, good managers can take a bad idea somewhere, but bad managers can ruin a good idea, right? So the team becomes fundamental to any of this stuff. So that's one of the key things that you're always looking for. Is this the right team for this product, for this solution, for this idea? And 
it's really hard when looking for these types of things to understand the outliers sometimes defined. So what I mean is like, when I look at this, like, great, I would love somebody that's done this four or five times, right? So that shows that they've done this, right? But if that is my metric, that means you miss Steve Jobs. That means you miss Mark Zuckerberg, right? So these general rules don't always set these things, right? Like if you look at, well, I want somebody with industry experience, right? And let's just take, again, I'm taking the hyper examples. Well, Elon Musk was in payments with PayPal and then went over to electric cars. He had no experience in electric cars and then also to rockets, but clearly, you know, was able to do that. So it's hard in these type of environments to have these kind of hard and fast rules, but understanding kind of the frameworks that you are operating in and then deciding when you're going to break them. It's an interesting thing, especially in bio right now, where this tech convergence, we talked earlier about like the convergence in, in, in Austin, is starting to really make some of these rules difficult because we're seeing a lot of tech entrepreneurs move into health. So you might be like, oh, well, you have no healthcare experience, but what you're bringing actually might be interesting if we can make sure and figure out how are you not going to trip up on these parts of the health journey that could get you in trouble, right? And that's back to the team. It's like, well, if this is the tech entrepreneur, but they've got this healthcare experience by founder two or founder three, that might be the ways to assess it, right? What are some of your investments that you're most excited about? So I'm going to put two of my investment um, thesis on it, and then I'll kind of tell you about like one of, the, one of the ones that I'm really excited about. So two of my biggest investment thesis goes around one is the tech bio convergence, right? As we talked about, I'm not, a, I don't have a PhD. So it's one of the reasons I don't generally invest in direct therapeutics. I, I don't have the technical background to be able to say, yes, this drug pathway you've identified is the right thing. And I, I understand that I, I'm going to be able to do that binary risk. But I do like, as we see this convergence of software, AI, 3D printing, business model change coming into coming into biology. So that's that's piece one, right? The other piece is the consumerization of health. Now consumer health falls under that, but the fact that we are seeing when you saw during COVID, we saw business model change, telemedicine growing big. You see a lot more kind of this focus into how do we talk about the shift from you know the whole sick care to healthcare? How do we see of price transparency? So those are two of the big themes that I like to invest in. So uh, a company I'm invested in is that's called Plano is sits at the center of that. So I got to step back a little bit and give some context. So there recently in the last few years, there has been this big push into liquid biopsy cancer screening. And what that is, is the ability to take a blood test to, to see if somebody has early stage cancer. And so there's companies called Grail, Freenome, and a number of others, Gardent, that have been able to create these tests. It's an amazing stuff that's going on right now. And when I was at uh, Illumina, all of those tests were being run on Illumina's machines. And so it was, an, it was this uh, amazing invention they were able to do. Grail was actually a spin out of Illumina, and now Illumina is, was trying to bring them back in-house. The problem with, with that model right now, and it's not a problem if you're Illumina, 
is the only way you can run those tests is on basically the big million, million and a half dollar machines, right? So it really is structured in the central lab type thing. I take the blood test, you mail it in, comes back two weeks later, right? So again, if you're Illumina, that's fine. That's great. We love, they love selling those machines. As you probably have seen recently with all of the different acquisitions that CVS, Walgreens, Walmart, they're all trying to move into that, you know, that space, right? They're all trying to move into the primary care diagnostic type of space. This company Plano that I'm in, that I was able to get into both the, the, the pre-seed seed and series A is actually, this is their, back to our, this is their fourth company that they've done. They sold a company to, to Illumina. They've done a lot of the space is basically able to create, they're creating a benchtop device that is able to run these exact same tests, call it in a very short period of time so that you can do it at the CVSs, at the Walgreens. So it actually changes up this kind of diagnostic journey, right? And so that's something that's really exciting to me that kind of brings together these, these two things. And yeah, so I was able to get into them really early. They raised at the end of 2022, they raised a $40 million A with some top-notch you know, investors. So that's probably one of the ones I'm really excited about. How do you approach risk management and decision-making when you're evaluating potential investments in early-stage startups or just startups in general? This is a highly risky asset class. And so it's back to that venture power law we talked about before. So when you are looking at this, the expectation is that one of these is going to, is going to have that kind of return of the kind of the whole portfolio out of, you know, 10 to 20, right? That's your return, your funds. So that's generally speaking, you know, one of 10, you know, two of, two of 20, kind of those kind of numbers, the way that you approach this. And so that is the way you go in thinking, right? Is, you know, over time, it's also a learning, right? So I got into this probably in 2018 and I started off by being in a few angel funds, learned the ropes on how to do this. I will say like the very first investment I ever made was in an angel fund and the unit cost was $5,000. So I said, Joe, that's how I convinced my wife to do this is like, well, when we lose all our money on this investment, which I'm sure we will, because most of these investments go to zero, we'll treat it as an education expense, right? And so that's the, the mentality as you go. And then as I've learned more and gotten better at this, then you make your decisions, you place your bets in, the, in that kind of way, right? And so, and so it's been able to learn and increase your network, increase the value of the deals, be able to look for those signs, crazy mental models. That's how you approach the risk. How can one start trying to stay informed and learn the ropes of angel investing? So read a ton. I mean, just consume knowledge, I think is, is the starting point, is figuring out what it is. And I think the, the key here is that you're not going to learn and be a generalist. I don't really think that so much exists. So finding out what are those areas that you're really interested in and want to learn about so like, I don't know, I mean, you're talking to me like e-commerce marketplaces, I have no idea, right? Like that's not an area that I have any, any knowledge about, right? So finding those areas that you're, that you're passionate about, that you have interest and, you know, at the, at the age you are, at the age that, that you are, that your listeners probably are, this isn't a commitment, right? This isn't any sort of place that you must be like, that's it. I got to know. I mean, if we said like, 
in my path, it's been jagged. So just being open and learning that you are, that there are certain, there are actually restrictions that you're about being a, a qualified investor to angel investing. So you have to have certain either income levels or net worth to actually start investing. So I think that's one of the things that you, they, the government tries to keep it for people who actually can invest in this space. But learning that, volunteering with different groups, talking to people, I think is just the way to start. How can you find valuable information in an age where we have an overabundance of information? Oh, that is a good question. It's actually even, I think you even left a piece out of that is not only do we have an abundance of information, but so often prognosticators, this is even worse on the political side, but even on this, on the technology side, people are not held accountable for their predictions. So people make predictions and then six months later, you're like, your prediction, you said this and you weren't even close to being right. So one I think is going back and trying to find the timeless books and models and seeing what holds up. So that's one thing. Seeing who today is, I almost go back and say like, who today has been the right people who've shown they work and what did they write five years ago? What did they write 10 years ago, right? I think that might be uh, interesting to at least pick the, start picking some of the people to follow and read. I think another one is almost, to your point, is, is maybe looking at almost a scorecard that you could start to follow and see, okay, this person said this. Are they right? Are they not? Making your own predictions as you're feeding this in. Also starting to go to first principles and just understanding it. Like some of this stuff as it comes out. I mean, I, I joke like this is the first time I, I've been through crypto and meta and all of these different things. This is the first time I've ever actually said, I wish I was 25 and wish I could have, you know, jumping into to generative AI and all this kind of stuff and just playing. I mean, it is, we are living in an interesting time in this technology where it's actually accessible. Like you can go and easily play with this stuff and use it. So this is an interesting time where you can just go and do, go use Midjourney, go use ChatGPT, go use all of these other ones that are out there and see what they do, see what you can build, see how you can play with it and learn it, and then see what different things. I also think be highly skeptical. Say what's out there. The easiest one is everyone's like, I am a chat GPT expert. It's not been out for a year. So have those kind of filters on that says anybody that is saying those kinds of things, you know, if someone's building something and says, I built this thing. And so I'm now willing to sell it. Okay. Now I can actually that's at least a value exchange I'm willing to try out and willing to see if that's worth it. But, you know, be on the lookout for anybody claiming things that is like, well, I, I could be as much of an expert as you if I've done six months worth of work, right? So what skills do you see being increasingly more valuable in the future? Adaptability. Things change. I, I'm sure you've seen or maybe you've seen some of those graphs of like, you know, electricity took 100 years to to infiltrate 50% of households and, and TVs was like 40 years. And, and then cell phones was 15 years. And if you look at like, you know, chat GPT was a hundred million people in five days. So these things are just happening faster and the ability to learn, be adaptable and try new things and be curious. That's the things that, that that's the new skill sets is we're going to be continuously living and working in a rapidly changing environment, how are you going to be able to deal with that, right? Both from a skill set perspective and just a mental 
wow, everything's just flying by. And so I think that becomes the, I think the, the number one skill sets, right? How important is networking and effective communication skills in the future? And how do you see that playing out? I think it's, it continues to always be really important. And I think the most important thing with networking, so I'm going to separate them out in difference, right? So networking has always been really important in relationship building. And I think the problem that most people take with networking is they treat it as a transactional game. I'm either, I want something from you. I'm trying to sell you something. I want a job. And that's going to be the nature of your, the entire relationship you're ever going to build with somebody. And versus the importance of second and third order thinking is if you want to build relationships when you don't need something, just build for the sake of building relationships, meet interesting people who knows where interesting connections and like, oh, I remember so-and-so was looking for this thing or that thing, or you might be an interesting thing for this, or, or I just want to have a conversation about that or hobby. Like these are where the interesting connections occur. I, I remember a conversation I had, this was a couple of years after I, I graduated from business school. And I remember going back and, and talking to a mentoring a student and she had gotten a job at IBM. And this was like at, I want to say the second month of the second year. So she had her entire second year left. And I was like, you are in the best position possible because you got your entire second year to just be a student and network. And you're like, I have a job. I don't need to bug people about, you got a job for me, you got a job. She can just network and make connections and build these things while having the, the lack of stress of trying to find a job, right? And so I think that was the building block. So I think that's the, that's the importance of networking is not to always be so transactional. And this is not a young person. That, like, as I said, as you, as, you, as you get older, it ends up being so much like sales oriented. It's like, okay, I need to, I got to sell you something. I got to find my service or whatever it may be. On the communication skills side, I, again, back to that storytelling aspect, I think that is, is vital. I think being able to tell stories is what makes us human, right? We back to the oral traditions, caveman paid like this is we were always telling each other stories. And so being able to craft powerful stories and, and especially complex topics. So I remember there was this there's this company, I don't, I don't mention the name. It was this highly complex, really amazing like sentence that you write out. It was like, this is a really cool sounding thing really technical. And I remember running into the, the CEO who was a professor of a university. And I was like, okay, this sounds really cool, but why are you using X in this, in this arena? Right. And this is someone who'd been in academia for, I don't know, 20 years. And in less than two minutes, he explained to me why this highly complicated thing was important in the healthcare sector. I think I've introduced him to three or at least three or four VCs because I was like, the fact that this highly technical person could explain to somebody who doesn't have a physics degree why this thing was important. I was like, that is an amazing superpower. Forget the, the actual like use case in and of itself. 
And so the ability to tell stories and bring it down or up to these different levels, that's why we see those like those videos of like, can you explain a concept to a five-year-old, a 16-year-old, a, a college student, you know, and an expert in these spaces, right? It is really important to be able to bring concepts and stories and, and understanding and communicate to an individual, to a group, to the masses. So how can one take a more active role in practicing this storytelling that you're talking about? Launching a podcast is not a bad idea. I Talking to people, writing, I think all of these things, I think, are just consciously doing it, right? Getting out there and and doing it. Being being a writer, in, in I, and I use that term almost loosely, right? Broadly in this kind of space, is an important part of how we are doing it, right? Uh, you know, get on the different mediums and think about it. And this is where, like we said, ChatGPT and these things are free now, right? Use it as a coach, right? And say, like, how could it be better if I tried it in this style? That is the part that is really interesting about this time. You said, like, you know, you asked earlier, like, you know, are, are we losing education? Like, no, you have a writing coach that's at your fingertips now that's non-judgmental. You could ask, like, how could this be better? How could I? You could ask it the most, like, harsh question and getting feedback that is, you know, going to be actually non-judgmental, patient, in helping you move forward in understanding deep either concepts or writing or whatever it may be. And I think any of these things is going to be about, one, practicing and then getting it out there, right? I think that that's the hardest part about any of these kind of communication types of things is eventually you have to get out there and put it out for consumption. Could you share a piece of advice or a life lesson that has had a profound impact on your own career trajectory and how young people can apply that same advice to their own lives? I'll change it a little bit in one that I've started to give that I wish I had gotten earlier because it's a very different, it's a different position that I am now. For young people, take more risks. This is a very different situation for someone like me where I have a family, I have a mortgage, there's a certain level of risk that I can and can't take given the level of responsibility that I have it, 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 in my life. The amount of risk that I took in my early 20s was not nearly the amount of risk that I should have taken given the level of responsibility that I had. What was the worst that happened, the amount of risk? Okay, I would have had to go do a different job. I had taken, I'd gone to a, a startup, right? And so I think that is one of the things is when you have that level of early freedom, take that risk that you can. And what you're going to learn something, you know, if it doesn't work out. And, and even in that case, if it doesn't work out, it still works out because you're still going to learn interesting things. You're going to get experiences that you wouldn't necessarily have gotten and I think that trying out these different paths, I think, is what's what becomes interesting because I think we, we've, we've had so many of these traditional kind of rails that we were on, right? And as I said, one of the big things is, you, is we going all the way back to the beginning of our conversation. I had these very strict paths that I thought I was on, right? I wanted to be a scientist and go, okay, I'm going to go get, get a PhD. Do it. Oh, no, I don't want to do that. The part I didn't mention is that each time I was thrown off these these rails, it was like six, nine months. It was not an immediate change. It was like six to nine months of me being in fog, going like, okay, I wanted to be a scientist since I was in seventh grade. 
I had this entire life plan set up. I got a taste of it, hated it, and now what am I doing with my life? Oh, I had this entire life plan to get to go be a startup CEO, and that's not happening. Now what do I want to do? And so the ability to be that flexible, take those risks early, and trying out these different things and not get stuck in these kind of paths so early, I think is one of the things that I think we've been making that change, right? My parents' generation, they were at a company for 40 years, that was it. Now we're switching more when, in my generation. Now you're going to the next generation beyond. Is you're, you're switching more, but yeah, I, I think it's just the biggest thing. It's just take when you're young, take more risks, try out different things, and I think there's only upside. Well, thank you so much for your incredible advice, and I really appreciate your time and insights. Absolutely, thanks for having me on. Thank you for listening. If you learned something, be sure to share this with a friend that could use it. My name's Charlie Hubbard, and this has been Professional Profiles. 